Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm Farajasat. And before we go to this week's episode, I want to share some exciting news. We've recently launched Intelligence Squared Plus, a new digital subscription service for online events. If you're a fan of our podcast, you can now listen to them while they're being recorded. You can join our most high profile speakers in live interactive online events and ask your questions directly to them from the comfort of your home. We have an amazing lineup over the coming months, from authors like Margaret Atwood and Salman Rushdie to big thinkers like the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman and the economist Thomas Piketty, as well as the big names in arts and culture like the singer Paloma Faith, chef Yotam Atalengi and podcaster Elizabeth Day. If you still need convincing, here's a message from our friend Stephen Fry. Hello, I'm Stephen Fry and I'd like to encourage you to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, the new and very modestly priced digital subscription service from my friends at Intelligence Squared. You would, I think, be hard-pressed to find an organisation that better presents and supports debate, discussion and civilised, rigorous conversation, perhaps never before as the world needed all of these things quite so keenly. Perhaps you'll be kind enough to support Intelligence Squared by signing up for this service. It only costs £5 a month. Do consider it. Thank you very much indeed. So there you have it. If you're interested, please do click on the link in our podcast description or go to intelligencesquared.com. We hope to see you virtually at one of our online events very soon. And I'll now hand over to my colleague Connor to tell us more about this week's episode. Thank you, Farah, and hello, podcast listeners. This week, in the wake of sweeping protests about racism and police brutality, we have Dr. Pragya Agarwal, author of the new book, Sway, Unraveling Unconscious Bias. And Dr. Pragya spoke to Kavita Puri, author and broadcaster at the BBC, to answer questions like, how much is prejudice rooted in our evolutionary past? Are our technologies affected by bias? And how can understanding this field help us uproot things like racism, misogyny, and make better decisions in general? So it's a really interesting episode, and we hope you enjoy it. 
Hello, I'm Kavita Puri, author, journalist and broadcaster. Welcome, Pragya. Thank you. Thank you, Kavita. So we're all biased and we make snap judgments, which can be based on stereotypes. I think it's useful if we start by talking about unconscious bias or implicit bias, terms that you use in the book. What are they and how do they differ from conscious beliefs? Yeah, I in my book, I use implicit and unconscious bias, the term interchangeably. So implicit biases are ones that we might not be aware of consciously or these prejudices or stereotypes we might be carrying that we either are not aware of or we do not, we fail to recognize or acknowledge or accept. These are some of the templates that exist within our brain or these shortcuts that we match a lot of incoming information with and that in turn affect our actions, decisions, interactions. And they differ from these conscious explicit biases which which we are able or more comfortable to voice and which we are more comfortable about saying that we have these preferences. And they they might affect our actions as well but they don't have these kind of insidious effects sometimes that unconscious bias do. What I thought was really interesting in the book is that it's not just bias of race or gender, which is what we think of. It's we make judgments on accents, beauty, height, even there's bias within racial groups. Um, and I and I just think that's, you know, people don't really think about that, do they? No, and I really wanted to do that, bring that across, because I think sometimes when we talk about biases or even the word bias, people get really defensive. It can become like an emotive topic because everybody thinks that we are really fair-minded and there's a lot of discomfort associated with racism and sexism. What I really wanted to do was to bring across that we might be biased in ways that we haven't even thought about and they really affect our assessment of other people and situations. For instance, I give the YouTube Example, when they designed their app, video uploading app, they hadn't taken left-handedness into consideration. And that affects a lot of that kind of those kind of social norms in design teams affect a lot of how our everyday products are designed. The crayons, which don't have a range of skin colors. I remember as a child using peach skin crayons to color, uh, make a sketch of myself and being very baffled by it. But those kind of effect the design within design also affects how everyday products are designed. So and our system and technology and also things like ageism, which we know exist, but we don't understand the fully the impact that it can have, how people, you older and younger people beyond the social norm can be assessed as well. So you explain that there's an evolutionary origin of bias, that it's based on survival. Just talk a little bit about that. I was really intrigued by this idea of in-group and out-group mentality and a lot of our prejudices come emerge from how we define who's part of our group and who's not, this out-group membership. And we are, there's a lot of research to show we are more likely to be biased against or have negative biases against people who we perceive to be not part of our community. And um, research in evolutionary theories show that it's kind of a survival instinct. In very, very distant past, our ancestors had to make these quick decisions about who is a threat, who they should be afraid of. There were limited resources they were competing against for. And so there was this competitiveness for survival. And that 
kind of led to this notion of in-group and out-group membership. And that, I think, is a little bit these primal instincts of having this tribal mentality, these cliques, these comfort groups that we form. And it also leads to the confirmation bias that we have, that we are more likely to be biased towards or are positively biased towards people who are who look like us, act like us, think like us, talk like us. And a lot of our prejudices and stereotypes can be shaped by these in-group, out-group memberships. But why was that based on survival? Because survival is a primal instinct. And when there were very limited few resources that everybody was competing for, you have to determine, they had to determine a notion of who is going to be a threat to these resources, who is going to be a threat to their survival. And, And that is why you have to make, they had to make, that those are the theoretical frameworks that we're working with, that they had to make a very quick judgment about this person is a threat. This person is not more part of my tribe. So this person is a threat to my survival. So what's going on then in our brain when a bias is activated? So a lot of these bias, as I said, is part of this feeling of fear or threat against something that's unknown or unfamiliar or something that be a threat to our survival. So um we get a lot of information coming towards us very quickly and we have to process it. But our brain cannot process all that information so fast. So a lot of the information that's being processed really quickly, especially when we're making rush decisions, are processed in at, at a very superficial level, not at the kind of rational, logical level. And so we talk about the dual process theory, which is a system one and system two analysis. And in system one, when we are processing this information on kind of very quickly, we are matching it to the templates that already exist in our brain. These shaped by our past experiences, our memories, and these templates are often result into stereotypes because we have this notion of this, this this is how a person reacted in the past. And by kind of reasoning and association, we say everybody who looks like this person might react in the same way. So that might result in somebody crossing over the road or clutching their handbag very uh, quickly when they see a black man coming towards them because they have this association that maybe black men in particular are more associated with criminality or aggressiveness or threat. So our amygdala, is activated where this notion of fear is created within us and we react very, very quickly in in a way that that again kind of fires up these stereotypes and our prejudices that are already there. And so when we take a time with some of these decisions and we let take time and process this information, which we call the system two processing, then we can actually process that in a more rational manner, we can be more judicious about it. We can let not just an amygdala take over, but process it in a level which tells us that actually it's not a threat that this this situation is happening. Actually, the noise we are hearing is not something to be afraid of. It's only an owl or something. Or the person or shadow in the dark we're seeing is not something to be afraid of, but only a neighbor, neighbor putting out the bin. So though that kind of thing it takes time sometimes to overcome that initial feeling of threat and fear. I, I want to step back a little bit and ask about you and what happened in your life to make you interested in studying bias. So this book is kind of a combination of um, personal, but also my academic research. So during my PhD, I was looking at mapping technologies and 
technologies which which I realized weren't very objective and it's only a notion of what data is being captured, what worldview is being represented, whose representation we are actually looking at that I was really interested in. And so I started researching more in this whole notion of bias, qualitatively and quantitatively. But as a person, as an immigrant who came to the UK almost 20 years ago as a young single parent, then working in um, STEM domains, being appointed as a first female lecturer, woman lecturer in an engineering department, being a woman of color in predominantly white spaces. That is something that you experience every day about some of these are things that you dismiss and ignore and kind of brush aside. Some of the things stay with you and you realize that actually it affects a lot of your mental and physical health as well. And um, some things that you kind of take with you and think about. So, so it kind of, it's very difficult to separate the two about where my academic research interest and my personal experiences kind of fed into it. But, but they kind of came together into this understanding, trying to understand how we behave and why we behave like this. I mean, you you talk very honestly in the book about your experience of coming to Britain and how you navigated that. But I, I suppose you were seen by many in the way you were judged in a quite a stereotypical form, weren't you? Yeah, and um, I think I think that is a partly due to ignorance, partly. It's lazy stereotypes that people fall back on, partly things that people see in media. I talk about how programs such as Big Bang Theory and representations of Indian South Asian people in Simpsons, um, all that kind of feed into people's sensibilities about what an Indian person would behave like. I was an Indian woman. They have certain stereotypes of that as well. And so I think you're kind of battling um, some of these stereotypes, sometimes you play along and sometimes you just take them in a good humored way. But it is a, a challenge, isn't it, to be constantly kind of trying to shatter those stereotypes, because I think it's an emotional load that you have to carry as well, even when you're trying to counter those stereotypes, you're aware of those stereotypes. And I talk about something in my book called Stereotype Threat, where you know, if you know that you're going to be stereotyped, you go into a particular domain feeling this anxiety about being stereotyped, about knowing that you will be stereotyped, about having to work 10 times harder to break those stereotypes. And that creates additional stress and anxiety. And research has shown that it has a huge mental and physical impact on people's health. So I think that is something that, yeah, I think you have to navigate all the time about being aware of these stereotypes, being aware of your own actions about whether you're conforming or perpetuating those stereotypes, whether... You can do anything to break those stereotypes. All those things, I think. But I was quite aware of how you felt as an outsider when these situations that you're describing happened. And there's one thing that really stuck out in my mind. It was an incident you talk about when you were with your young child and an elderly lady admonishes your toddler for being too loud. Now, it's a very subtle incident that happens, but you say it's impossible to say whether race played a role and if this white woman would have behaved differently if I was white. Did she feel entitled to judge me and my parenting? Did she feel some kind of supremacy over me and did it annoy her that I was a foreigner? And you you couldn't 
put your finger on it and say it was absolutely racist, but it felt like that to you and these power issues at play. And I suppose that is something you bring up, isn't it? That when these microaggressions happen, if you say it out loud, it might not sound racist and then you start to doubt yourself. Yes, I think this is a tricky thing with a lot of these instances and the kind of these this the way these unconscious kind of implicit in racial acts manifest these insidious ways these microaggressions are the ones where you begin to doubt yourself thinking am i being oversensitive am i overreacting am i just just not understanding that other person am i reading too much into it and and yes i you don't know whether race plays into a role in it but i become very hyper aware perhaps of it recently more so because i live in a place where i am the only brown person i don't see any other person of color i will use that term um around me and um i i know i'm become i become more aware of how people look at me in the first instance then i know that they are forming a stereotype of me they're watching me more closely when i am in a supermarket because there's nobody else around them and we know that this feeling of unfamiliar something that is new unfamiliar creates a feeling of threat in people and so if they were exposed to more people like me they would probably have a more empathetic or more understanding view of diversity and so all those kind of notions yes microaggression is a really tricky thing to understand about how do we navigate that how do we talk about it how do we really voice our our discontent at something like that in workplace but in in societal situations like that so the recent killing of george floyd in america and the black lives matters protest it's raised so many issues and i just wondered as as you look at it as a behavioral scientist what role does unconscious conscious bias play here yes i think as these instances have shown the george floyd killing showed us that one it's not the first time it has happened it's not a rare occurrence there's a lot of research and data to show that black people are more likely to be arrested more likely to be shot by police in the US there is data in my book and evidence of, about it and although it's hard to find that data because they don't obviously disaggregate the data based on ethnicity sometimes there is it it is very very evident stereotypes play a huge role in it the kind of way that people have these stereotype perpetuated by politicians by media where they where we know that black people as i said black men are more associated with aggressiveness and criminality they there is already these stereotypes amongst police officials when they are making these hasty decisions that a person a black person is more likely to be engaged and 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 uh in a criminal activity and we have very, a lot of instances which i talk about in the book examples of this that happen we also know that black women are there's a lot of stereotypes with it which we we don't often think about because there is not data about black women they become invisible victims because there's no disaggregation of the data according to gender in that but they they are considered angry black women stereotype uh, exists and um, they also they face a lot of sexual harassment and rapes uh, as well and so the stereotypes play a huge role there is research 
which has been done in virtual reality where people had to make a decision about whether a person was carrying just an innocuous object like a, a phone or, or, or some tool rather than a, and a gun and they had to click a button which says shoot or do not shoot and it was found that they were more likely to click that and make an error an assumption that a, a black man was carrying a gun and they would more likely to click the button shoot when they saw that. So these these experiments have been carried out which show that these stereotypes are really de- deeply ingain, ingrained in our society. And what we have to be so careful about is how media plays into it, how politicians, because of political gains, create this feeling of fear and threat because when people are fearful and threatened by anybody who's not part of their group, they are more likely to trust or believe somebody who's who's like a politician. So it all plays into that. Well, it's, it's fascinating you say that because I suppose what you're saying is that politicians can stir those primal instincts that you were talking about earlier of, mm-hmm. of, of that, that are rooted in, in, in stereotypes. Yes, I, I I believe so. I believe that because a lot of what we're seeing around the world, not just in the US, but UK and India, partisan politics is playing a huge role. And it's about dividing people. And when you divide people, when you create a feeling of outsiders or fear of outsiders, immigrants coming and taking your jobs or or uh, or black people taking you over jobs, but being criminals or anything like that is people when they are afraid they they retreat back in their comfort zones and and bubbles they are less likely to be positive towards any incoming new information about these outgroups uh, the groups that they perceive as outsiders they are more likely to believe more and more any negative information that comes out about them and and that's how these lines are laid down, these rigid boundaries, I think, in our society. You talked about the evolutionary origin of bias. Is racism and xenophobia hardwired and, or is it just used as an excuse? Um, it is not hardwired. And I know that media plays up on these, as has done in the past, played on these kind of some of this research and talked about how it is hardwired in us. So we cannot do anything about it, how it's genetically ingrained in us. I believe firmly that stereotypes and biases are learned through our lives, that we learn them. These are learned behaviors. And so we can unlearn them as well. These are some things that we pick up from early childhood. I talk about how children pick up these biases and prejudices in in my book as well. And then they become more deeply ingrained by things that we see and read around us. The less we are exposed to people of different views and perspectives, the less we are exposed to people from different ethnicity, the more we live in these kind of insular communities and society, both in real life and social media, the more we are likely to fall back on these prejudices and the more deep-seated they become. So um, it is not hardwired within us. It's not something that we can over- not overcome. It is not something we can not unlearn. So we've heard a lot about white privilege. How do those people who have an inbuilt privilege then check their bias? Yes, white privilege is a term that I think people find tricky to navigate again. And I think privilege is something we really need to think about carefully because we all carry privileges and that affects our status in society about how other people perceive us, what opportunities we are given. So within these groups, when we talk about racism, for instance, 
we need to think about the intersectionality of these different groups that are marginalized. So, for instance, I talk about black men and black women. They have different stereotypes associated with them because the, the intersection of race and gender, black women are more likely to be persecuted or stigmatized or prejudiced against for other reasons than black men. Then if somebody is a black gay person, they're more likely to be prejudiced against because of the sexuality uh, being another factor in, in how biases are, are created. And so I think intersectionality plays a whole, huge role. But white privilege is basically not saying that people have not had any struggle in their life, that they, they haven't had any obstacles. It's just saying that you haven't faced racism as an obstacle in your life, that it is a racism proof bubble that people live in, that when you walk into a room, you're not you're less likely to be the only person of uh, of a different ethnicity who stands out. You're you're less likely to be discriminated against because of your skin color. And I think we all need to acknowledge our privilege and how that creates a position, our status in society. What happens if people don't think that they have a bias? US President Trump, you quote him, says he's the least racist president ever. How do you deal with people who think like that? And I think <laughs> that's a really interesting question because I I do think that people who carry a lot of biases are more likely to believe that they don't have any biases because they're the least self-aware people. And I liked what Jane Garvey said about the book, that if you think you don't need to read this book, you need to read this book. Because I think that kind of sums it up in terms of how self-aware we are, how self-reflective we are. It's really tricky because what we can do is to talk to them, create a non-judgmental space where they feel that they can take on this information without being judged. And I think a lot of people are afraid of being called racist or sexist. And so they they kind of retreat back into their shells and they don't even try and acknowledge that they might have some biases. What I wanted to do with the book is to actually create this kind of non-judgmental space where hopefully people will read and as they read and read all the data and evidence and research, they reflect on some of the biases they might carry and how that might be affecting their decisions and realize that bias affects us, all of us in very different ways. And sometimes our intentionality is not what matters. It's what the outcome is that matters. So even when we think we are not racist, if it results into a racist action, I think that is what matters. And I think that's what we need to bring across. What do you think of the societal dangers, uh, and I mean overt and subtle, if we don't check our unconscious bias? I think it's really important right now to be thinking about our unconscious biases more so than ever, because we are seeing the impact that it has on not just very explicit ways like we saw with George Floyd's murder, but we also hearing stories of people being facing microaggressions for a long time, um, how that has affected their mental health. We are hearing how the systemic kind of racial prejudices and biases have even affected how different authors, the advance that pe- they they paid, and we're talking about ethnicity pay gap for, for the first time, um, really. There's focus on gender pay gap and justifiably so. But we have seen with publishing paid me that this is a bias. We are also talking about who are the gatekeepers who um, determine who gets published and not. So how the obstacles that authors of color face in trying to get an agent, trying to get their manuscript published. We are seeing that 
the effects of racism and racial biases are are more pervasive than sometimes we even realize that we are realizing that it is not enough to just say i am not racist we have to be actively anti-racist we have to actively address our prejudices our stereotypes and we have to actively be allies to people who might be facing this discrimination and i think this is so important right now that we do that in a very very active manner and we don't just talk about it we that it results in some action as well and so when these unconscious biases get unchecked leave unchecked we continue with these systemic biases we continue with black people or people of color being discriminated against in in healthcare um situations and context more black women dying in maternal during pregnancy and childbirth and and all those kind of things and so i think in every context in a society it matters and it's really really time we address that labels matter too and i just wondered what you thought of the word bame because many minorities dislike it they feel it's othering but also they feel that it doesn't take account for different groups who kind of experience very different types of discrimination yes i completely agree i think all these labels are very reductive and they center whiteness because they are saying that beyond if you're not white you're kind of lumped into this group which kind of homogenizes the whole community and then it when the data is collected it's all in terms of bme in the uk or people of color in the us and it doesn't take account of the intersectionality within these groups and how the situations and contexts are different as well and we're seeing that a lot but it's lazy policy making it's lazy labeling and it's it as i said it's just homogenizes it doesn't take into account individual context but it's very difficult to know what terms to use when i was writing this book i thought about it quite a lot and until i mean a lot of studies in the uk as i said use bme so it's very it's impossible to find data specific to certain ethnic communities in a lot of context it is in in the us often people of color or persons of color is used so it's very difficult to know how to actually sum up some of the the experiences that people have which are universal as well so there are some experiences which are universal within these communities as well their status as minority ethnic community universalizes some of these experiences but i do agree these terms are reductive i do agree that we need to move beyond that and disaggregate the data even more and even further and take these individual situation context legacies history into account and we have to look within our communities as to how we might be perpetuating racism as well by by our privilege and our position and our proximity to whiteness and i've talked about it a little that south asian communities have to do that as well about anti black sentiment black community to have to do that as well whether they are perpetuating racial biases and prejudices and stereotype against other minority ethnic communities so so yes i i don't have a solution as to what term is the most appropriate but in my book i've tried to use minority ethnic wherever i've talked about universal experiences otherwise i've tried to use specific terms like black and south asian and brown and asian americans how useful a positive stereotypes when you're talking about race in the book you talk about 
Asians being good at maths. That's not a bad thing, is it? No, it's not. I think we, it, it, the thing, the problem with positive stereotypes is they are stereotypes. They are ultimately homogenizing a community. They're assigning a label association attribute. So there are a number of issues with it. First of all, there, it has created this thing about model minority in which unless you are explicitly of value to the society as a minority community, you are not considered a, a good fit. You're not considered that you belong or you're part of the society. So it creates this kind of notion within the majority, but also the minority communities that you have to work really hard to be to feel that you belong, to be accepted, you know. So that that is one thing that creates this model minority myth. But secondly, also it's homogenizing the community. So, so it um, it when it homogenizes the community, the people who do not conform to that stereotype within these communities can also feel isolated. So if an Asian person is not good at maths, then they feel more of an outsider because they don't conform to that stereotype. So. And also it creates this competition, this toxic competition between the different minority ethnic communities that somebody is more valuable or has more attributes, positive attributes than the other. It, um, it, it is also true that a lot of these positive stereotypes have go hand in hand with some negative stereotypes as well. So when we say women are nurturing and women are very caring, it carries that kind of double bind bias where they're not seeing leadership material. When we talk about a certain ethnic group like ethnicity, like uh, um, Asian Americans, they're very good at math. Sometimes they're seen as nerdy and awkward and and not very good socially. When we think about when we talk about black people, black men being athletic, there has been studies to show that it sometimes goes hand in hand with some negative stereotypes that they might not be as intellectually capable because their their physical prowess is the main thing that's good about them. So there, there are a lot of these multiple layers of negative associations associated with positive stereotypes as well. And now it's time for a quick break. Hello, I'm Farah Jassat from Intelligence Squared. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Before we get back to it, I'd like to encourage you, our loyal podcast listeners, to subscribe to Intelligence Squared Plus, our new subscription service for online interactive events. Intelligence Squared brings together the world's top thought leaders and opinion formers, from Margaret Atwood, Thomas Friedman and Salman Rushdie, to Mehdi Hassan, Bernadine Evaristo and Elizabeth Day. Join us and take part in these exclusive online events where you can ask your questions directly to our speakers. It's only £5 a month and you get the first month completely free. Please do consider supporting Intelligence Squared and subscribe now by clicking the link in our podcast description. Thank you so much. I suppose the bottom line is that we're all biased. I assume that in your research, it made you think about your own biases. You recount quite a funny story of when you realised your young child was going to have a Scouse accent and you had to check yourself. Curious to know what other biases you revealed or you you discovered in yourself. Yes, that was interesting because I really had to step back and think about where does this bias against a certain accent comes from? 
and um, realize that so much of what we read about certain accents being sexy or certain accents being grating or certain accents being friendly, that all kind of feeds into these stereotypes about and the associations with me, we make with accents as well. But writing this book was quite tricky at times because even as I did a lot of research in it, I it was triggering at times, but it was also made me reflect so much on my own biases and about how I use terms. So such as if I was reading a book to my child, I often found that I was falling back on male pronouns, even when it was it wasn't explicit that the character was was as either gender. I also found that initially when I started thinking about gender and sex, I found that. I was finding it very tricky to think about non-binary and how the binary, the duality was so deeply ingrained within me that I had to really question it and think about, about my own biases about it. And so I'm constantly questioning and reflecting on my words, my language, and about whether my actions emerge from any stereotypes that I have. I want to turn to the internet, social media and AI, because we think, for example, that the internet is not biased, but algorithms are very much so. And I just want you to explain why that is the case. So yes, there is a misconception often that people talk about that technology can eradicate or minimize some of the human biases. What we have to understand that that algorithms or the tech are, are designed by people, they are trained on the existing data sets, and so if there is bias existing in the existing data sets, then that gets inbuilt into these patterns in the machine learning algorithms in the AI systems, the systems that are designed. And we have seen numerous examples. I recount them in the book about how if the data, if if for in, instance the Amazon algorithm. It was trained on the data where men applied more for the role, so that it was actively eliminating any CVs which had women in it, even when it said women's netball team, and and so a lot of these these systems are seeped, rooted in the biases existing in our society, in the design teams, as I said, mentioned earlier, and the data that's existing within us. So any data is a snapshot of the world. It's not. It cannot be complete reality. It it is biased according to the person who's collecting the data, who's representing the data, who's tagging the data. We see, for example, in our voice assistant systems, they all have are based in uh, they have a certain voice. Um, they're based in the idea that the, the women are subservient and are more suited to um, assistant roles. There's research to show that people like high pitched voices when they're looking for assistant. Uh, assistant technologies, but if there is, they need somebody to give them authoritative directions. They look for low-pitched voices, which are more associated with men. So there, these kind of biases come into play, and which which feeds into the biases that are existing in society. But when they they are widely used, they reinforce these biases as well. So yeah, our our technology isn't free of biases at all. And on platforms like Twitter and Facebook, how does it? work to kind of reinforce our own biases. So we talk about the idea of echo chambers and filter bubbles and we talk about how due to our confirmation bias we are more likely to to follow people who think like us. And Instagram especially there was uh, this whole movement around finding our tribe and it's basically it becomes becomes that we are only echoing 
uh, we're only hearing the views that are being echoed back at, at us, our own views. And we are clicking like, we're retweeting things very quickly. And so so most of these actions happen while we are being distracted by something else, standing in a coffee shop queue or, or looking after the children or doing something else. And so we don't have the time to assess a lot of the information that's coming at us in a very rational way. We don't have the, the, the we don't take the time to interpret the news that's coming at us and we are more likely to trust it if it's coming from somebody who's part of our group and who's who we know is part of our echo chamber. And so subconsciously all this happens. So that's how fake news spreads as well. We just, it gets uh, perpetuated like that. So this idea of, um, of staying safely into our echo chambers, not stepping out, not hearing any dissenting views, not hearing different perspective leads us to believe that the world is how we see it as. And we saw that during Brexit about how we all thought, who thought that we're going to have remain views, we all thought that it can never happen that people would vote leave because we were only being shown the information. We were only seeing the information that we believed in and we know how that was manipulated. The information about immigrants was shown to people who are more likely to vote leave and so their views got reinforced and this whole feeling of fear and threat again and was used for them to create this momentum for the vote. So so that that is just one example of how these algorithms can be manipulated and used on social media as well. IBM last week scrapped their facial recognition and tech too is is biased. I mean you gave quite a kind of stark example of when you try to get your photo taken a passport photo in a booth but it had trouble recognizing your face because it wasn't white and recognizing the color of your eyes I mean I was quite shocked to to hear that yes it it was it was just supposed to be a simple thing that was supposed to take five minutes but it was and I shared it on twitter thinking that it's probably an outlier and anomaly but actually lots of people came back with similar experiences of their own. I I got an error message for 25 minutes saying that my mouth was open when it was actually really closed. And I took a photograph of my mouth with being op- closed and the error message saying your mouth is open. So they couldn't recognize it. They couldn't differentiate the skin color. I know that my daughter, my oldest daughter, who has darker skin, has has problems uploading photographs on passport platforms as well for applying for passports and driving licenses. I know that the iPhone facial recognition thing, the camera hasn't worked very well with a lot of Asian Americans as well. And so again, it comes back to how these systems are designed in terms of the social norm. What is the norm? Whiteness has been the norm for so long. A certain facial features, a certain facial structure has been the norm for so long. And that has been adapted as the the template for designing much of our systems. And we know of research in by MIT lab in facial recognition that a lot of these studies that were done with black men and women labeled them as in error and they couldn't differentiate between black women and men as well. So again, again, it comes back to how we decide social norms in our society. So looking ahead, what are the proven methods that can help us eliminate unconscious bias? I'm thinking of perhaps diversity training, artificial intelligence. What can we do in a concrete way? 
I think we need to be open-minded. We need to be, we need to re-familiarize ourselves with some of this vocabulary and make sure that we know the theoretical frameworks that exist around them. We need to look at data and evidence. And if people want to educate themselves, there's a lot of resources out there. They can do that, but there has to be a willingness to do that. And I think awareness is really the first step where we have to be aware that this is needed. We have to be aware of how individual biases can lead to systemic and structural biases and how they both work hand in hand. And then once that is done, then we need to think about what training methods can really help us minimize some of these things. And I talk about it continuously that even when I give unconscious bias talks and workshops, they will help people be aware of them. They will help people realize what is unconscious bias. But no matter of training can cure people of unconscious biases. It can help people minimize them, being accepting of them, being aware of them and being constantly questioning our biases. But you cannot cure unconscious bias. There's also a myth that taking the IAT test is unconscious bias training. And a number of organizations that I work with feel that, that once they've had their employees take the IAT, they've done the unconscious bias training. And I discussed that in my book as well about why we need to understand what the test really does, what it is showing the score, what does it tell us? And the fact that it's not training that it's doing. And this training that we talk about has to be an ongoing process. It has to be a part of the policy of, of a group or of a workplace and it has to be active, concerted effort to really create these spaces within our communities and our workplaces where people can come together and talk about their biases and prejudices. And there has to be an awareness that we have to acknowledge that bias and prejudice exist in different forms. They're not always just explicit hate crimes. They are very insidious. They can be implicit ways that it, they can manifest themselves, microaggressions affect people a lot as well. And again, I come back to it that intentionality is some is not the main thing here. The outcome, what happens when a microaggression takes place has to be the focus of our action. But I think what you're saying is we can't completely eliminate unconscious bias. Yes, because a lot of these biases we need to function day to day. I mean, not all biases result in racist and sexist actions or prejudice against something. We have to realize that, yes, we carry these biases. These are shortcuts in our brains because they help us navigate the load of overload of information that's coming at us. But once we become aware that sometimes we might be relying back on shortcuts and these cognitive biases, we make sure that we take time with those decisions that really matter, that those decisions that are a matter of life and death or they, they are important, like in hiring, recruitment or assessing people, just as an example. And then then I think there's also that there is stereotypes that exist with, within us. We all have stereotypes. But there is a difference between carrying these stereotypes and activating those stereotypes. And once we become aware that that process is happening when we are assessing people or evaluating people or interacting with people, we can minimize that process of stereotype activation as well. And so, so yes, we cannot completely eliminate these biases because some of them we need for our day-to-day information processing. But the impact of those and how we let them affect our actions can be minimised. So if you were in charge of government policy tomorrow, what would be the first thing you would do to combat unconscious bias? 
to help us collectively make better decisions? This is a big question. Yes, I mean, I think that all everybody should get an education in unconscious bias about what it really is, that diversity and inclusivity isn't just a box ticking exercise, that and we we everybody is given the tool and vocabulary around some of these biases so that they understand really what it is so everybody should attend some of these sessions um but then again i think it has to depend on individual context and like we are talking about currently the race equality commission we need to think about equal representation we need to think about who is responsible for creating these commissions who are the gatekeepers who are who who is going to what what does this want to achieve uh, what frameworks are being used to assess race and racial equality and so i think there there's a lot of different issues here so i don't really have any clear answers dr pragya agarwal thank you very much thank you kavita that was lovely to speak with you thank you what are you doing right now perhaps you're in the supermarket maybe you're on a run or on the commute but wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing right now you're also listening to my voice this is the power of podcasts the ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio i'm b duncan senior partnerships producer at intelligence squared We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.